aware of the fact that the message I've got this morning is quite challenging. It has been to me. Um, and you might find that some of the things, even the words of Jesus, are, uh, they seem rather hard, but to, we need to remember that they come from a God who loved us enough to lay down his life for us and die for us so that we could become more like him, that we could be drawn more into his presence. So I'm most definitely speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you today. Um, I'm not um, standing here pointing the finger because, as we've said, we're a family, we're in it together, we're growing together. So all I'm doing is, I hope, um, giving uh, some idea from the scriptures as to this particular subject. Um, Just by way of introduction, I'll I'll take you back a few weeks. Um, It was only a few weeks that we celebrated... Uh, the coming of Christ into the world, the eternal Son of God became a human being, lived among us, and became one of us. Uh, And it is in this Christmas story that the purpose of his coming and his destiny was announced. An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We know that the name Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, means saviour. Jesus was to be a saviour. Jesus came on a rescue mission. After his birth, soon after his birth, his purpose in coming was further announced, again by an angel, but this time to shepherds. And the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. In other words, God himself is your Saviour. So the cross was always Jesus' destiny. God would reconcile the world to himself through the sacrifice of his Son. The sinless Christ would take our place and be made to face the consequences of your sin and my sin. And uh, he would take the punishment we deserve. He would bear the full wrath of God against sin and be our rescuer so that we could receive the free gift of eternal life. This, in essence, is the gospel, the good news that we proclaim. So now we can say to people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that he died for you, and you will be saved. That's the gospel. Um, The period of um, the life of Jesus that we often refer to as his public ministry uh, was when he emerged from apparent obscurity and for three years began to preach about the kingdom of God, uh, call people to repentance. Not only did he demonstrate the power and life of that kingdom by healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, restoring the deaf and mute and demonstrate his authority over the elements, even the wind and waves obeyed him, but he laid the foundation for this gospel to be preached and demonstrated throughout the ages until he was to return in power and glory. He had a plan, he had a strategy, that without it, this wonderful gospel would either be dreadfully corrupted 
or just fade into obscurity. Now the first slide, please. His plan and strategy, right from the beginning of his ministry, was to call men to himself to be his disciples, to have them live with him, to teach them the values of the kingdom, to train them, for them to observe the kingdom works that he did, and then for him to send them out to do the works themselves. He loved them, he admonished them, he corrected them, he inspired them, and he laid down his life for them. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what it means for the church to be the family of God. And it's been good, hasn't it, to remind ourselves of that. What Jesus was creating with his disciples was the first Christian family, made up of completely diverse individuals. But it's important to note that it was a family of disciples, of Jesus followers, not merely observers or hangers-on. There's an incident recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where Jesus had been teaching the crowds. John actually calls them disciples. However, we will soon see that they were pretty weak disciples. And Jesus was teaching them that he was the bread of life. And unless they wholeheartedly believed in him and received him as Lord, they would not have the life that he came to give. And we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Firstly, most of the crowds couldn't cope with what Jesus was saying. Uh, They found it far too hard, the things that he was saying. But we have this wonderful confession of Peter, which was the foundation of what it means uh, to be a disciple. And in spite of their often slowness to learn and their lack of courage when Jesus was arrested, tried and later crucified, uh, and after his resurrection he could call them together and appoint them as apostles, Apostles is not a grand title, it just means a sent one, somebody who is sent. And he sent them into the world to do what he had been doing, which was making disciples. So, a call to discipleship. For us, the words disciple and discipleship are readily associated with Jesus. It's possible that you could uh, say to somebody who's got no involvement with church, I'm a disciple, and they might well think about Jesus because that's how we think about it in these days. But the concept was by no means new when Jesus called men and women to follow him. In secular Greek, it would mean an apprentice to some trade, a student of some subject, a pupil of some teacher. In New Testament times and in the Jewish context, there were students of the law of Moses. They considered themselves disciples of Moses. These disciples would submit themselves entirely to their rabbi and were not to study the scriptures without the interpretation and guidance of their teacher. And although the concept of discipleship or apprenticeship was widely accepted at the time of Jesus, 
Jesus took a radically different approach to it. In rabbinical circles, the disciple would choose his own master and voluntarily join his school. But with Jesus, the initiative was entirely with him. We see in the early chapters of the Gospels where men like Simon and Andrew, James and John and Matthew and others, that they were all personally called by Jesus to follow him. He was not calling these men primarily to his teaching, but to himself, that they might be with him. And then later in John 15, we read, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So he chose them and he chose them with a purpose, that they would be fruitful. It's said that when Buddha lay dying, his disciples asked him how they could best remember him. He told them not to bother. It was his teaching, not his person, that counted. With Jesus, it's altogether different. Everything centres around him. Discipleship means knowing him, loving him, believing in him, being committed to him and being obedient to him. Disciples of a Jewish rabbi would submit themselves as slaves to their master until they could leave their school and become masters themselves. But Jesus calls his disciples to unconditional obedience for the whole of their lives. Now whilst we could say that those early disciples were unique and that Jesus was addressing them specifically in that they had a personal invitation and physically lived with Jesus, heard his teaching and correction from his lips and um, see him do physically the works that they were later to do also. And most importantly, they were those who witnessed the resurrection. Nevertheless, the principles of discipleship that Jesus taught are wholly relevant for us and we are called to a radical lifestyle in whatever environment we find ourselves. Why do I say this? Because one of the last commands that Jesus gave his disciples, which we call the Great Commission, says this. Have the next slide, please. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Notice that there are no vagaries about what these uh, further disciples were going to be like because each successive generation of disciples would or should be taught what Jesus taught the first disciples. So now we, who have the commands of Jesus plainly set out in the New Testament, are faced not only with the invitation to follow him, because that's what the gospel is, it's an invitation to follow Jesus, but also the challenge of obeying his commands. And as we will see in a moment, uh, that, they were, that they were so challenging that we might be tempted to ignore them or argue, out, argue them um, out of them. Ha but however tough they are, um, we are not alone because Jesus was with them or is with us by the Holy Spirit, uh, which the disciples had yet to receive. He said, I am with you always until the end of the age. 
And I think there's a connection with the going and Jesus being with us until the end of the age. He said, go, and I am with you till the end of the age. The first disciples understood this more, I'm sure, when Jesus explained that his presence with them would be by the Holy Spirit, which they'd not yet received. In Acts 1.8 we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Very similar, really, to the Great Commission, and that Jesus again would be with them by his Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, uh, and those early believers, and thousands were added to their number that day. You remember last week, Barry did the maths and told us it was 3,120 all right, who, was, who were, had the Holy Spirit poured out on them on that day. They became a community of Jesus' followers, uh, which became known as the church. And even though there have been some very... Um, dark days in the church's history and there have really some really dark days when the light almost went out the call to discipleship still stands to become Jesus followers to obey his commands and to make more disciples in the way that Jesus did because he set the pattern for making disciples as I was going through this the question came to me to what extent are we truly disciples of Jesus? And are we, in turn, actively making disciples in the way that he intended? It's important that we realise that the call to salvation through the gospel is also a call to discipleship. Just as those early disciples were called by Jesus, we too are called by Jesus through the gospel, not just to come to him and be saved, but to obedience. We are called to obedience. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. No, it's not about if, if you don't keep the commandments, you'll be punished. The motivation is, if we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. So our obedience, if you like, is, a, is perhaps a test of, of being saved. Um, it would seem strange if pe people claimed to be a, uh, believers and yet were not obedient to the, the claims of Jesus. We are saved not just to do as we like, but for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God through our obedience to Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship, Paul said, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. All that we are is because of what God has done in us. The call to discipleship is radical. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, said Peter. We no longer live for ourselves, or should do, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. I think this should be a good daily Reminder to us, a daily challenge as we start the day to say, I don't belong to me, I belong to someone else and that I want to glorify him and do what he desires in this day. Jesus gathered a band of men and his plan for them 
was to start the revolution that would change the world, and it has. In spite of all the other ideologies and religions that there are in the world, there has been nothing like Christianity to change the world. There were so many things that came into being uh, through Christianity. Uh, schools and hospitals and labour exchanges and all sorts of things came into being because of Christianity. It's, it most definitely changed the world and continues to do so by people who take Jesus seriously. Here's just how radical this call is. You're probably aware that there are a number of um, sayings of Jesus where one way or another he's saying, you either do this, if you don't do this, then you can't be my disciple. Or if you do this, you won't be my disciple. But here's just one or two. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, this is what he's calling you to do. I think there's been much misunderstanding in popular thought as to what this cross that we're supposed to take up would mean. Many people think it's some, some kind of burden that they have to bear in life. They say, oh, it's the, it's the cross I have to bear. And often it seems that it, they're referring to difficult people that they've had to live with, you know? And mother-in-laws seem to feature quite strongly in this. Yeah, she's just the cross I have to bear. I've said it before, my mother-in-law was fantastic, so I don't make me quote about that. But no, the cross Jesus referred to was anything that is the consequence of our choice to follow him which may bring all sorts of problems. And of course, for many around the world, it's persecution. And much of the New Testament is written with the background of persecution. And um, if you think that here we have an exceptional demand for the 12 disciples who had a special responsibility to launch this movement uh, that would change the world, uh, then listen to what Paul has to say to the church at Rome. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, or because of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And a modern translation of part of that says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould. And it's only when we see ourselves as chosen, called and commissioned by Jesus that we shall have a real sense of our responsibility to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's very similar to what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Jesus made it clear that when we become his followers, it will bring us into a new relationship with our world, which will include our natural family, and we may have to make some painful choices. He said that choosing to follow him 
may put us at odds with our family, which can be so hard uh, when they see us following him as our priority. He said, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's Matthew 10, 35. He's not saying that we should stop loving these people. Far from it. Um, as Christians, we should love them more. But they may reject us because we are following Jesus. And it's a price that we must be prepared to pay if we are truly his disciples. Typically, Muslims face this. Muslims who become Christians are often cut off from their families, they're disowned, they even have death threats against them. And, and that is so, so, so painful for them. So painful. He went on to say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, can't really be my disciple. I don't know who said it, but somebody said, if we love Jesus more than our nearest and dearest, we will actually love our nearest and dearest more than we do now. So somehow, our nearest and dearest don't necessarily need uh, to lose out. Being a disciple will not only affect uh, our relationships, but, uh, but to also to money and possessions and time and talents. He summed this up in Luke 14, 33. He said, So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce all that he has. Does that mean we've got to give away everything? That we've got to become destitute? Be cast off all material things? Now, I don't think he means that at all. Uh, because I, I believe that we, you know, he doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the good things that God has given us, but we are to hold them lightly. Remember that he is Lord of them, so that if we are called to let them go, um, and let go of something for Jesus' sake and his kingdom, we will have the grace to do it. As hard as that all sounds, um, great is our reward in the age to come, and even in this age, this is what Jesus said. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you think that's true? Have you, have you experienced that? Just on, on, on one of those issues, I think I could name over a hundred people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and many of you could do that. I would class most of you here as my brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? So that has already become a reality. It's already become a reality. Um, just a, 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 a little personal testimony. Um, some of you know that from a fairly early age I used to play drums in a dance band and um, I used to enjoy it. It was, it was great and I earned a bit more money. Um, you know, and I was an apprentice that could do with the money. And um, as time went on I became a Christian and it was alright for a while and then I felt God was asking me to give it up. And uh, I struggled with that for a while because I enjoyed it. 
But eventually I did, and amazingly, I didn't miss it. And I, we were living away from here, and I put the drums in one loft, and they moved to another loft, and I, I had no expectation of playing again. And yet, to, to cut a long story short, uh, God gave it back to me. And I've, done, I've been to places, played in places I would never have done if I'd stayed playing in a dance band. I mean, I played in the Albert Hall and the St Paul's Cathedral, lots of cathedrals around the country, gone to different places, um, played at the Downs Bible Week, all sorts of things. And to me, that's just an illustration that when we give up something, often God gives it back to us. He didn't have to. I was quite prepared that perhaps I wouldn't be playing drums again but God so graciously gave it back to me. So I, to me, that's, that's an illustration of that. But he says, with persecutions, because as I said earlier, persecution is the background to much of what uh, is said in the New Testament. Persecution is a reality for millions of people in many parts of the world uh, where there are Christians who are living this out because they're in the midst of persecution. They know that when they become known as a Christian, it would mean persecution, which takes many forms. Some have lost their place in society, been denied education. Some have been separated from their families. Some have been imprisoned, and some have been deported to labour camps, and some have lost their lives. But amazingly, often their prayer requests, which find their way to us in the West, are uh, that, that they pray um, that they may... Um, remain strong in their faith and give a good testimony to be a good disciple. And as an illustration, it's estimated that upwards of 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in horrific labour camps in North Korea. Probably the worst place to be a Christian. One could say that their discipleship was forced on them um, because of their circumstances. But um, they had a stark choice either to deny Christ or, or to acknowledge him and face the consequences. Fortunately for us in the West, the church is largely accepted as part of society. Isn't it? And so far, we've not faced significant persecution, although I think the signs are there. Individual Christians, um, we find they're being persecuted. Um, but the fact that um, we are largely accepted, there is a downside to this, because it's easy for us to opt for a comfortable ride. Uh, to see the church as a place where our needs are met and our prefer preferences are pandered to, rather than a place where we are regularly challenged to be obedient to Jesus and live a radical lifestyle for him. And even when it comes to making disciples, I don't know what you think, but we're often more concerned about getting people converted than we are in, making, in helping them become dedicated followers of Jesus. It's almost, we think, oh, this person's saved, the job's done, let's go and get somebody else saved, you know? There's a quote from a, a book um, that I've had for a long time and I've reread part of it anyway um, in preparation for this, called Discipleship by David Watson. He wrote it in um, uh, 1981, quite a long time ago. He said this, the Christian church in the West cannot afford to ignore the plan that Jesus chose for the renewal of society. He came with no political manifesto. 
He rejected all thoughts of violence. He shunned all positions of influence in public life. His plan, which was to challenge the history of the world in a way that had never been equaled, was astonishingly simple. He drew around him a band of dedicated disciples. For the best part of three years, he lived with them, shared with them, cared for them, taught them, corrected them, trusted them, forgave them, loved them to the end. They, on their part, sometimes failed him, hurt him, disappointed him, sinned against him, yet he never once withdrew his love from them. And later, empowered by the Holy Spirit, this group of trained disciples turned the world upside down. That's what their enemies said, didn't they? These people who have been with Jesus have turned the world upside down. I, I find this challenging. I, and the question came to me, what chance have we, as a family of Jesus followers, of turning Herne Bay upside down, let alone the world? All right. Now, I know the circumstances are very, very different. All right. and, and, but we can make that an excuse. I think we should just accept the challenge of this and think, what will it take? What, what changes in us will it take that we could actually turn our town upside down? The truth is, it's possible to build what would be considered a successful church one with a full programme of activities for all ages and a high attendance and not make disciples. It's been said that if you concentrate on building the church, you will not make disciples. But if you concentrate on making disciples, you will build the church. And after all, Jesus said, you go and make disciples, I will build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So uh, that's the, the call. Jesus will build the church. We need to go and make disciples. I think we need to consider again what discipleship means for us as individuals as G- and as Jesus' family. And also then consider if we as disciples are making disciples as Jesus commanded. Firstly, as we've said already, we are called by Jesus to Jesus. Discipleship must start with our personal relationship with him. Remember that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think you can see that the, 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 the key to, if you like, successful discipleship is our love for Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, are we nurturing that love, that love for Jesus? Uh, if we don't maintain our relationship with him, which would be typically through prayer and reading his word. His commandments may seem too much to bear. They are very hard. But if we love him, there's a chance that we'll find the grace to obey them. But secondly, it was never intended that we should go it alone. When Jesus called those first disciples, he called them to be part of a community, a family, And if we're to withstand the pressures of the world, as well as offering the love and life of Jesus to the world, then we need the strength and support of other committed disciples. Just going back to that paraphrase from Romans, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. But on our own, it's almost impossible to defy the materialistic and covetous pressures of society which bombard us on every side. I'm appalled at some adverts that you see. Must have. You know that? 
must have or have a, have a new three-piece suite. You don't need to pay anything for a year. Right? And it's all about the things that, that we need and that we should have. A Christian writer called Ronald Sider writes, the values of our affluent society seep slowly and subtly into our hearts and minds. The only way to defy them is to immerse ourselves deeply into Christian fellowship so that God can fundamentally remould our thinking as we find our primary identity with other brothers and sisters who are also unconditionally committed to biblical values. And, and this raises a question. Where do you find your primary identity? This is who I am. Where do I find my identity? It might be in your family. You might say, my family is my, my primary identity. It might be your career. It might be your hobby. It might be other things that you do. But as far as Jesus is concerned, it should be our Christian family. That's where we should find our identity. And you may remember that, that people came to Jesus and talked about his mother and, and brothers were outside. And Jesus said something quite stru- uh, stark, really. He looked around the people who'd gathered around him and he said, these are my, my mother and my brothers and sisters, those who do the will of my father. So Jesus clearly identified those who followed him as his primary family, his primary family. But there's another reason why Jesus calls us into his family, and it's because it's here that our self-centeredness and independence are most challenged. Nearly all the instructions given in the New Testament by Paul and other writers as to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus has to do with how we relate to one another. That's so important in the scriptures, how we relate to one another. Firstly, how we accept one another, how we forgive one another, how we have patience with one another, how we put others before ourselves. In essence, how we love one another. And of course, Jesus said, that's how the world will know you're my disciples, because you love one another. This is because the church is to be a visual aid, a demonstration of what the kingdom of God is like. I can't remember who said it, but in the series we've talked about the kingdom of God being an outpost, sorry, the church being an outpost of the kingdom of God. And even with all our faults and failings, when people ask us, what is the kingdom of God all about? We should be able to say, come and see. Just come among us. Come and spend some time with us. And we'll show you what the kingdom of God is like. The way we relate to one another will either confirm the message we proclaim, in other words, it will show that the gospel works, or it will undermine it. Uh, If we say to people, come to Jesus and your life will be transformed, and they look at us and they see no evidence of it there, they're going to say, we can't think much of your message, can you? So it's it's a huge challenge. We we are imperfect, obviously, but, but even if they observe how we forgive one another, all right? We do sin against one another, but even how we forgive one another is a a measure of the kingdom of God, especially. Jesus trained his disciples in community, not in one-to-one counselling sessions. That's popular, isn't it? One-to-one counselling session. But he did it in community. 
and, and he, it's still Jesus' way. It's only when we allow ourselves to be open and honest with one another regarding our struggles and shortcomings that the grace of God can bring healing and the Spirit of God can transform us into the likeness of Christ. A real shock to our private, independent world is when James says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then in Galatians, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's only when we grow close to one another and open up our lives to one another that the state of our hearts is revealed and sin identified, confessed and forgiven. This is something that happened during, regularly during the Wesleyan revival in the mid to late 18th century in the class meetings that sprang up everywhere. They were like our home meetings. Here's the description of what went on. The heart of Methodism during the life of John Wesley was the Methodist class meeting. This was a small covenant discipleship support group where members were accountable to each other. They covenanted together to be accountable, to look, after, look out for one another. They confessed their faults one to another, prayed for each other, and stirred up one another to love and good works. Here the teachings of the Bible were examined in the light of actual personal experience. Here leaders were nurtured and equipped. The fact is that with some sins, uh, we may need this level of society, so, sorry, may need this level of accountability in order to break free. Right. I, I don't know what your experience is, but for many people, they just find they cannot break free. And it's with this level of accountability that we can break free. Over the years, I think we have largely seen church home groups, whatever you want to call them, as places of comfort, support, teaching and encouragement, which indeed they should be. No problem with that. But we have in some cases kept them neatly within our comfort zone and not allowed them to be a place of challenge. I think that inviting challenge can be an expression of dying to self and wanting to be more like Jesus. I, I think over the next weeks we're going to be looking at the practicalities of some of these things. But let me close by reading uh, something else from David Watson's book. This is what he wrote in the introduction to his book on discipleship, as I say, back in 1981. And he's making a case here for taking discipleship seriously. Now, I want to say, I'm not saying this is describing us, but it could be. It, we, we could be in this state, if you like, because, as I said earlier, it is possible to build the church and not make disciples. It's possible to build a church which uh, is quite institutionalised and provides a lot of services for people, but not... Um, make disciples. So here's what he says. Christians in the West have largely neglected what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The vast majority of Western Christians are church members, pew fillers, hymn singers, sermon tasters, Bible readers, even born-again believers or spirit-filled charismatics, but not many tr true disciples of Jesus. If we are willing to learn the meaning 
of real discipleship and actually become disciples, the church in the West would be transformed and the resultant impact on society would be staggering. Would be staggering. Okay, I'm done. Let's just pray. Father, some of that is, to say the least, uncomfortable. But Lord, we come back to our, our primary relationship with you and the Lord Jesus. Lord, we do love you. We do love you. We love you for who you are. We love you for what you've done for us. Lord, that you gave your all for us. And you've invited us not only to come to you and be saved, but also to become your disciples. Lord, I've got a long way to go, and I guess many of my brothers and sisters here have. And by the grace of God and by the power of your Spirit, Lord, we can be better disciples than maybe we have been so far. Lord, we want to have an impact on our society uh, on our community, on Herne Bay, or wherever. We want to have an impact, Lord. And we ask you that you will help us over the next few weeks to look at some of the practicalities of, of what this means for us. But Lord, we don't reject this. Lord, we don't say, well, this is not for us. Lord, we say, by your grace, uh, we can be there. We can get there. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. It's much to uh, chew over in our small groups uh, during the week. Uh, questions will be available in the next 24 hours or so to help, uh, help those conversations. Let's press in. It's, it's, very, it's very much easy to listen to something like, go, yeah, really challenging, and then bury our heads in the sand and hope we didn't hear it come Monday. <laughs> let's, let's not lose this. Let's press in and, and see what God says through it, and then next week it'll be unpacked a bit more by Bob and Mick as well. Teas and coffees are now served. Do parents want to fetch your children for kids' work? That'll be brilliant. One more thing I forgot entirely to mention at the beginning of the meeting, prayer and vision tonight at 6.30 until about 8 o'clock at the Beacon Centre, 78 C Street. Please do join us. We've got a few things we're going to be praying through, including praying for our nation amongst other things as well. So please do join us, 6.30 tonight at the Beacon Centre. That would be fabulous. Thank you very much. Teas and coffees are now served.